want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 3. If you're just joining us today, we've, been, uh, we've begun recently a series of messages in the Sermon on the Mount, and so today we, uh, we're going to continue that. Christine and I have lived in our neighborhood now for just over 21 years, and I want to share a story. About 15 or 16 years ago, uh, one of our neighbors came home to a huge surprise, They had in their front yard, as do most of the homes in our neighborhood, they had a a tree that had been planted when the house was first built in uh, the very early 80s. It it had grown for about 25 or 26 years. It was now quite a large tree, a mature tree, and they left their home one day, and the tree was there. And when they came back at the end of the day, the tree was gone. Like, it was gone. Someone had come, they had cut it down, chopped it up, swept it up, packed it up, and the tree was gone. We, uh, we discovered what happened from the couple that moved into their house uh, and became friends of ours. They, they shared the story with us, and, and, and their account was that the house had been for sale. They had come to see it uh, when, when it was for sale, when that tree was there. They came back to finalize the deal, and the tree was gone. Instead of the one tree, there were two columnar aspens in the front yard instead, and so they, they found out what happened. The, the homeowner of 119 Kirkwood Avenue had indeed called a tree removal service to come and remove the tree in their front yard. The problem was we don't live on Kirkwood Avenue. We live on Kirkwood Way. And so the tree removal people had shown up in the right neighborhood but on the wrong street and taken down a tree in front of a house that was not supposed to be removed. I I can only imagine that moment of dawning comprehension for them when they realized what they'd done, because you can't simply replace a 25-year-old tree. So they did their best, and they replaced it with two columnar aspens, and, and that's the story of what happened. This morning, as we return uh, to our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and to the Beatitudes... Uh, we will see this morning in Matthew 5, verse 3, the, the first of the Beatitudes, we will see the essential beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We will see, we will recognize, we, we must see and recognize, we must grasp uh, what's going on here, that this is the essential beginning. If we don't get this right, if we don't get this right, we will be off track the rest of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. We will, if we don't get this right, we will find ourselves at the wrong house cutting down the wrong proverbial tree. We need to get this right. This is the, the first beatitude, Matthew 5.3, is the essential beginning to all that will follow. Excuse me as I struggle with one hand. Okay, I know our text off by heart. It's one verse. I'm not boasting. I trust that by the end of this morning, you'll know it too, if you don't already. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we, we began our series by asking the question, what is this? 
How are we to understand it? And I, I gave you a bit of a survey of the approach uh, the church has taken to it throughout the centuries. And there have been a variety of wide approaches. Many of them have essentially said the Sermon on the Mount, end of the day, is not relevant to our lives. I, I would dismiss those. Uh, there are some views that have something for them. But at the end of the day, I contended, and I will contend throughout, that the Sermon on the Mount is the ethic for the inbreaking kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount uh, tells us what life looks like when God's reign breaks into this broken world, when we believe the gospel, when the Holy Spirit begins to have his way in us, our lives are changed, and we look like uh, the men and women, boys and girls, who are described in the Sermon on the Mount. That the Sermon on the Mount is the ethic of the inbreaking kingdom. It describes our character. It describes our conduct. It describes our motives, our ambitions. The, the motives, ambitions, character, conduct of those in whom uh, God's reign is taking root, in whom the gospel is taking root. The gospel, the proclamation that Jesus came uh, announcing the gospel, he, he said, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is near. Believe the good news. Believe that in him, history has reached a major turning point. That in Jesus' coming, uh, we are moving from one age into a whole new age. That God's reign is breaking into the world. That God's kingdom is invading the earth. That in Jesus, everything's changed. That in coming to Jesus, we are changed. We are transformed through faith in him. Through faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we are rescued from sin. We are set free. We are forgiven. We are made new, new creations. We are transformed. Jesus came proclaiming the good news, the, the gospel. And if we lose the gospel, then the Sermon on the Mount will become either frustrating idealism, something we could never live up to, or oppressive legalism, something that will absolutely crush us. So we must remember always the, the gospel that provides the context into which, uh, out of which Jesus preached this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, verses 3 to 10. I argued that verses 11 and 12 are just an expansion of the final Beatitude in verse 10. There are eight Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes as a whole, we looked at them as a whole uh, two weeks ago. The Beatitudes as a whole describe Christian character. The character of men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, in whom the gospel has taken root. It describes our character. And it's important to remember what I said two weeks ago, that the Sermon on the Mount does not describe eight different types of Christians. That is, these qualities, these characteristics are not uh, one Christian is poor in spirit and another uh, mourns and a third is meek and, and, and some others are hunger and thirst for righteousness while, while others are merciful and others pure in heart. Some are peacemakers and lastly, there's some that get persecuted. Uh, Jesus is not describing eight different Christians or eight different types of Christians. All of these go together. Every Christian, every person who has believed the gospel is being transformed into a person who will exhibit all of these characteristics. This is Christian character. This is what we will look like as the Holy Spirit has his way in us. Likewise, the promises of the Beatitudes are all connected. I highlighted for us two weeks ago that 
uh, the promise of the first beatitude and the promise of the eighth beatitude is the same promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the last one, blessed are you, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is, if you will, a kingdom of heaven sandwich, picture it that way. What that means, it's an inclusio is the technical term, but what it means is that the whole list of beatitudes that that promise carries through. So the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but those who mourn, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are meek, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise is, goes through. And what that means also is that all the other promises that we encounter throughout the Beatitudes are different aspects of what it means to receive the kingdom of heaven. When we receive the kingdom of heaven, we will be comforted. We will inherit the earth. We will be filled, satisfied. We will receive mercy. We will see God. We will be called children of God. These are all aspects of life in God's kingdom. Another important thing that we need to remember is that these are not natural human qualities, not natural human characteristics. We can't produce these. No one is born with these. Jesus did not show up and begin walking around Palestine looking for beatitude people, looking for people who exemplified these. No, Jesus came proclaiming the good news, and when people repented and believed, the good news takes root in the heart, and, and God begins to shape us, transform us into people who reflect these qualities. These are not natural human qualities. One more thing. These are eight interrelated and inseparable characteristics or qualities. Each flows from the next, and, and they all go together. When we are poor in spirit, when we recognize our utter dependence on God, then we become men and women, young and old, who mourn. We mourn, we grieve over our sin and the sin of the world. And as those who recognize our utter dependence on God and who grieve over sin, ours and that in the world, we become those who are meek because there's simply no room for pride, for arrogance, And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice, it's not blessed are those who are righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who long for things to be the way they're supposed to be. And we become those who are merciful because we recognize both our deep need and our reception of God's amazing mercy. And we grow to be those men and women, young and old, who are pure in heart, that is, who desire one thing, and that is to know God. And we're promised that we will see God. And as those who are being transformed in all those ways, we are peacemakers. We, we run out into the chaos and the brokenness of our world, proclaiming a Savior who is the, the Prince of Peace. We seek to bring his peace into the world, and as we go, we find ourselves persecuted and crushed because the world is in rebellion against God. These are inseparable. They flow one into the other. They are like a great symphony. We had the joy many years ago when we first got here. Calvin, our oldest, who is 22 now, was maybe two years old. And we had a friend from Vancouver come. And he is a professional violinist, played in the symphony. And he came to our home. His name was also Calvin. And he brought his violin in and he, he played for us. And I remember the delight 
of our two-year-old standing on the couch next to him, Calvin, listening to Calvin as Calvin fiddled away. And it was amazing. He's such a gifted violinist. And it was a joy to hear him play his violin. But it's, it's amazing to hear when it's not just one violinist, but 60 or 80, I have no clue how many people are in a symphony. I didn't ask. It's not my world. But if you've ever been there and heard an orchestra where there, there, are, there are many instrumentalists, and, and they, they play together, and it's this marvelous symphony, this marvelous thing where everything comes together, that's what we find here in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount. This flows, these Beatitudes flow together. They're interrelated and inseparable. Lastly, before we look at it, the order is of great significance. This is the first beatitude, and it's first because it needs to be first, because it is first, because it is the essential beginning point of this sermon. If we miss this, we're cutting down the wrong tree. First beatitude, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? There are two Greek words that are translated uh, with the English word poor. Uh, the first is the word penes. It, it denotes those who have very few possessions, who have no land, no property, those who have to work to support themselves daily, but they can do so. They, they live hand to mouth. They go to work. They get paid. They can buy supper. This is the working poor, paycheck to paycheck, we might say. They differ from the wealthy because the wealthy can support themselves uh, by, by their wealth without working. They, they don't need to go to work today in order to eat today. But those who are poor, penes, they, they need to work today in order to have supper tonight. There is a second word that is translated poor, and that is the word ptokos. And it means the destitute poor. The beggarly poor, those who have absolutely nothing and are utterly at the mercy of others. It is this word that Jesus uses here. Blessed are the patokas in spirit. Blessed are the destitute in spirit. The beggarly in spirit. Those who have absolutely nothing. Those who can do nothing for themselves. If we contrast what Jesus says here, what we read in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, with Luke's version, some of you are familiar, Luke has a section of text that has some similarities to the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's much shorter and a little different. But, but Luke's version here, he says simply, blessed are the poor. And so we might be led to ask, is this about economics? It, has Luke socialized what Jesus said? Or... Has Matthew spiritualized what Jesus said? Is, is it blessed are the poor or is it blessed are the poor in spirit? I want to contend that what Matthew and Luke are saying mean the same thing. Let's consider for a moment what Luke has written. Is Jesus saying that those who are materially poor are the blessed ones? That those who are materially poor are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven? This would mean if we think this through, that salvation is a matter of social class. Now, to be sure, the Scriptures warn us of the dangers of wealth, the dangers of putting our hope, our confidence in wealth. 
But nowhere does the Bible actually teach that poverty itself is a good thing. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, The poor man is no nearer the kingdom of heaven than the rich man, speaking of them as natural men. There is no merit or advantage in being poor. Poverty does not guarantee spirituality. So then what are we to make of Luke's blessed are the poor? Well, the Old Testament provides us with the necessary background. At first, the poor simply meant those in material need. But as John Stott notes, gradually, because the needy had no refuge but God, poverty came to have spiritual overtones and to be identified with humble dependence on God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor are both saying the same thing. Blessed are those who recognize their utter dependence on God. We also need to recognize that poverty of spirit is not about poor self-esteem. It's not about feeling poorly about ourselves, having some uh, spiritual inferiority complex. It's not thinking that we are worthless, that we have no value, that we are garbage. Rather, poverty of spirit is this deep recognition of our spiritual bankruptcy before God, that we have nothing to merit salvation, that we come to God with empty pockets and empty hands, utterly dependent upon him. D.A. Carson calls poverty of spirit the deepest form of repentance. There's a great story that Jesus tells, a parable in Luke 18 that exemplifies this. Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees, of course, were, uh, were very religiously focused men. They, they were all about obedience to the law. In fact, if God had a law, they created other laws, sort of a fence around it. So if I'm not supposed to do this, how about I build a fence and I really, I really stay away from that thing I'm not supposed to do? They were very focused meticulously at obedience to the law. The other was a tax collector, they were hated. They were sellouts. They were in bed with the Romans. They were, they were Jews who had taken employment with the Romans to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And most of them uh, cheated and took more than, than was necessary. And so they were, they were absolutely detested. They were hated. They were cheats. Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple. And the Pharisee goes to the temple and he looks up to God and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other sinners. And he points to the tax, like this tax collector. And then Jesus tells us about the tax collector who simply went in the temple, didn't even lift his eyes up, and he just said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says at the end of that parable, this man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. That's poverty of spirit. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the Pharisee thought God was lucky to have him. Look at how good I am. I'm not, I'm not a sinner like these people. That's an absence of poverty of spirit. Blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit, those who have nothing, those who recognize their utter dependence on God's mercy, God's grace, God's work of redemption. Again, Lloyd-Jones writes this. The Sermon on the Mount, in other words, comes to us and says, there is the mountain that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb, and the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain, which you are told you must ascend, 
is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. The good news announced by Jesus, the good news that we see in the first beatitude is that it is not about your performance for Jesus, but about his performance for you. You can never do anything to make yourself acceptable to God. You cannot repay, I cannot repay the debt that our sin has incurred. We are unable to fix what is broken in our lives. We are unable to deal with our rebellion and our sin. But the good news is you don't have to. I don't have to. Blessed are you when you recognize your utter dependence on God, when you recognize your utter complete spiritual bankruptcy, that you come to God with nothing for For yours is the kingdom of heaven. That is the beginning point of the whole life with Christ. That is the essential beginning. How can that be? How can that be? It is the truth. It is the truth at the very heart of the the gospel because of what Jesus has done, because of what God in Christ has accomplished. It, It is so vital for us to understand the cross of Jesus, why Jesus died. We often say, Jesus died for me, Jesus died for us, and there is absolutely a sense in which that is true. But you and I don't demand the cross. God demands the cross. And so Jesus died for his Father. Because see, God is holy. And God cannot stand, he cannot tolerate sin. And God is just, which means he must punish sin. And because we are all sinners, the Bible tells us that that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, that we deserve that. We have a massive problem, an insurmountable problem from from our end of things. But the Bible tells us also that God loves us. So how can God, who is holy, who cannot stand sin, who is just, who must punish sin, but who loves us as sinful men and women, young and old, how can God remain consistent to his character? He loves us. He loves sinners. He longs for us to be restored into fellowship with him. So how? The answer is the cross. The cross enables God to be consistent with his character. His holiness is justice while still exercising his great love for sinners like you and me. In Romans 3.25, we read this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Other translations use a different word. The ESV says, God put Christ forward as a propitiation. What these different terms are trying to communicate is the fact that in Jesus' death on the cross, God's justice and holiness are upheld. Jesus died in our place. Jesus bore the penalty that you and I deserved. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for our sin. Thus God is is able to remain consistent as both holy and just while loving sinners, while pardoning and blessing us as sinners. We need to understand this. God, God doesn't love us because of the cross. It's not like God was angry and then Jesus died to appease this angry father. No, God in his love 
desired to redeem us. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. God in his love for sinful men and women, boys and girls, young and old, sent his son Jesus so that he might remain true, truly holy and just and punish our sin as he must while at the same time loving us. And so Jesus came and willingly went to the cross in our place. There is an important theological term that is profoundly relevant at this point, and that is the term justified. Through the cross of Jesus, we are justified. Justified is a legal term that points to the fact, not not simply that our sins are forgiven, though they are, but to the fact that the charges against us are are done. They're they're over. I I heard recently that in Scotland, uh, perhaps in other places, but in centuries past in Scotland, when uh, a prisoner was was in jail and they were going to be executed, after they were hung, after they were killed, there would be a notice posted on the prison door saying, so-and-so has been justified. That is, there's nothing owing anymore. The penalty has been paid. They have been hung and they have borne the penalty for their sin, for their wrongdoing. They have now been justified. Uh, we need to think of that. We have been justified through Christ. That is, Christ bore the penalty, and our sentence has been carried out, and it, it's done. It is finished. I want you to imagine here, I just want to help illustrate this. I want you to imagine for a moment that... Uh, that I, I'm away, let's say I'm in Calgary, I'm at one of our sister churches, uh, there's one that I know that has a coffee shop right across the parking lot. So let's, let's assume I'm there, I'm speaking over the course of a day, and, and I get there and I have a break and I go, I'm going to run for coffee because I love coffee, and I run next door to get a coffee because I really enjoy, I used to, this is, I said imagine, right? I really used to enjoy their coffee. Um, and, and I go into the coffee shop and I realize as I order a coffee that I, I forgot my wallet. It's not on me. And so I, I, I kind of beg a little bit. I said, you know, I really love coffee. I forgot my wallet. Yeah, anyway, you can give me just a cup, a cup of coffee. And, and after I, I carry on a little bit, the, the girl behind the counter says, okay, here. She, she pours me a coffee, and I get to enjoy a coffee. A little bit later on in the day, I go back for another coffee. And, and I still haven't tracked down my wallet. And I say, you know, you gave me that coffee earlier. Do you think you could give me a coffee again? She's like, we really can. You're like, but, come, you know, don't you make fresh coffee like every 20 minutes? Aren't you just going to dump it? So why don't you just kind of dump it in my cup and I'll have another coffee. And, and she does. And I, I show up later and I, and I beg again, can you please give me, give me coffee? Please. I, don't have my, I can't pay for it. I need it, though. I really like it. This is how many of us approach God for forgiveness. Lord, I really need forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? Would you please have mercy on me again? We appeal to his mercy, hoping that once more he'll forgive us, hoping that we have not exhausted his mercy. But that is to miss, to misunderstand what happened at the cross. Imagine again this fictional coffee shop and this experience. Imagine if earlier that day, before I got there, my host knew that I was forgetful and wouldn't have my wallet and knew that I would need coffee. And so my host went to the coffee shop earlier and, and said to the staff, hey, here's like $300. This is way more. I'll never be able to drink that much coffee. So just whenever he comes, just give him a coffee. It's, it's covered. It's paid for. More than enough. 
Your penalty, my penalty, has been paid for. We don't come to God hoping that he'll be merciful. We come to God confident that that Jesus bore the penalty for me. He bore it for you. And there is a notice that has been nailed to the prison entry that says justified. It's over. Jesus meant what he said on the cross when he said, it is finished. We have been justified. And we stand blameless before our Heavenly Father. Forgiven, cleansed, made new and clothed with his perfect righteousness, the perfect obedience of Jesus. In the minor prophet Zechariah chapter 3, there's this amazing story. Joshua, the high priest, shows up in the presence of God. And if, you, if you've been reading Leviticus lately, you'll have been reminded. I don't know if that's true for anyone. But if you've been reading Leviticus, the high priest, before the high priest could enter in the presence of God, the high priest had to offer a couple sacrifices for his own sins, and then he had to take a bath, and then he had to put on special clothes. And when he came out, he had to take off those special clothes, have another bath, and put on regular clothes. It was a big deal. In Zechariah 3, Joshua the high priest is standing in the presence of God, and when we see him, he is covered with filth, literally with human excrement. It's shocking. An angel of the Lord says to those who are near Joshua, he's not condemned, he's not sent away. Take off his filthy clothes and clothe him with clean clothes. That is what has happened to you and to me when we repent and believe. All our filth, all our sin, the penalty is paid in full and we are clothed with the perfection of Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Christian life, Christian character begins with a profound sense of one's utter spiritual bankruptcy, with a profound sense of one's wretchedness before God, a profound sense of our utter inability to fix what's broken, to deal with our sin. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you recognize that you can't earn this, that you can't do anything to fix this. And when we realize that, when we grasp that, that that we don't just need help, we need resurrection, we're dead, we're lost, we are left to ourselves without hope. When we get to that point, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the beggarly poor. Blessed are those who know that they come empty-handed. For you get the kingdom. Brendan Manning in his book, The Lion and the Lamb, The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. His books are worth the money just for their titles. He he writes this about the poor in spirit. He, he, He speaks of them in terms of being shipwrecked. And here's what he writes. The shipwrecked have little in common with the landlocked. The landlocked have their own security system a home base, credentials and credit cards, storehouses and barns, their self-interest and investments intact. They never find themselves because they never really feel themselves lost. The shipwrecked, on the contrary, reach out for that passing plank with the desperation of the drowning. Adrift on an angry sea in a state of utter helplessness and vulnerability, the shipwrecked never ask what they could do to merit the plank and inherit the kingdom of dry land. 
They knew there was absolutely nothing any of them could do. We are those who are desperately in need. And in Jesus, we, we receive a plank. He rescues us. That is poverty of spirit, a recognition that we are entirely helpless, wholly dependent on God, utterly without hope apart from Christ and the cross. Throughout this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we must continually come back to this first beatitude. It is the essential beginning. Without this, everything will get twisted. Without this, this sermon will become frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. Without it, we will be overwhelmed and disheartened, discouraged as we make our way through this sermon. We must never lose this. This is that plank we desperately need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand, who recognize, who see their utter, complete dependence on God. For there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Remember what blessed means? Congratulations to the poor in spirit. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. You lucky bums, according to one theologian, to the poor in spirit. Because then yours is the kingdom of heaven. When you realize that reality of your desperate need, that's the beginning place, the essential beginning. Remember the tree removal friends I shared about. Imagine again that sick feeling. I can only imagine in that moment where they discovered or were told that they cut down the wrong tree in front of the wrong house. You, you, you can't just put a 25-year-old tree back. They, they, they got that wrong and it, and it messed up their day, no doubt. If we don't get this right, this sermon will oppress us. It will frustrate us. It will crush us. This is the essential beginning to realize from the beginning, Jesus who came announcing good news said, blessed are you when you recognize your utter dependence on me. For then you get the kingdom. Let us be those who are anchored to this, who recognize that this is the plank that we need, who reach out and grasp it and never let go. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are humbled. We are humbled before you. Our holy and just God, who because of the cross is able to express your love to us so abundantly. Would you anchor our hearts and our minds to this beatitude, to the truth that lies at its heart, Shape us to be boys and girls, teenagers, women and men who are poor in spirit. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.